First Timothy chapter 5, if you'll be finding that place. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 25 right at the end of the chapter, First Timothy chapter 5. And today's text just continues what we were focusing on last week. It's God's instruction to pastors, for pastors, but by extension, it's to His churches. And today's passage is a little bit different angle than last week's, though it's still instructions for pastors, you could say. Last week was talking to the church about her pastors, and this week is the Lord talking to those pastors. That said, while the particulars are definitely directed toward pastors, everything in this passage applies directly to all Christians. So kids, if you want to remember today's sermon, I think you can do it if you can remember four words. See, grow, care, know. That's what the passage is about. God sees, God causes growth to happen, not like plants and trees and grass, not your pet or your own body, but inside your character, Christian growth. God sees, God grows, God cares, and God knows. That's the outline of today's passage. It's about honoring Christ in all things. That's the sermon title. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 21 to 25. Let your eyes fall on that place and especially open your heart to hear the words of God. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. This is God's Word. Would you join me in prayer once again? So we ask for the Father's help. Father, we praise You. Thank You for these few verses in 1 Timothy, some that we may often ignore but are so important for the life of true Christian growth and godliness. We thank You that in these few verses You show us that You see, You supply, You care, You know. Would you give us eyes to see you through today's passage? Would you give us right here and now the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that we may honor Christ in all things? And if someone doesn't want to honor Him in all things, who's here among us now, would you invade their life 
give them saving faith, cause them to hope in Jesus, and give us all a God-wrought desire to honor Jesus in everything. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All of 1 Timothy 5, the whole chapter, we're right at the end of it, but the whole chapter is about honor. More specifically, it's about how the gospel of Jesus Christ produces a culture of honor in a local church. Local churches are capable of truly honoring Christ because they are, according to the New Testament, to be made up of Christians. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but nothing that a lost person can do in the biblical sense honors God. Even their best deeds are something he despises because they're done for the wrong reason. We're talking about motivation, honoring Christ, loving Jesus, glorifying Jesus, honor him. Well, New Testament churches, I mean, all the churches that you hear about in the Bible, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Rome, those churches were made up of people who were Christians. We call that regenerate church membership. After you've been regenerated, after you've been born again, John chapter 3, Jesus said that has to happen to you before you can see or enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit has to make you alive from spiritual death by giving you to Jesus. That's what becoming a Christian is. Well, when you're alive in Christ, you have your faith is in Him, turned from and renounced all other hope for salvation, churches were made up of those people. So I'm going to go back and say something again. Local churches are capable of truly honoring Christ because they are made up of Christians who together help one another keep our eyes on Jesus. That's your job. That's my job. In the church, among a bunch of other really good and God-honoring things, we are especially to help each other keep our eyes on Jesus. And so if you're not yet a Christian, we are so glad you are here. We want you to understand who Christ is, what God has done in Him to save us, and what He invites you to enjoy as you live with Him and walk with Him. Well, as I mentioned earlier, chapter 5 is about honor. So in the first two verses, the gospel produces a culture of honor. Younger men honoring the older men and women, treating each other as brothers and sisters in the faith, not being harsh with each other. The gospel changes the way we relate to each other. I mean, at the end of the day, if you are a daughter of the king of the universe, and I believe that is true about you, it will very much influence the way I relate to you. And if you believe that the person sitting beside you is a son or daughter of the king of the universe, it will absolutely temper the way you think about them and relate to them. Well, the gospel produces that in a church. That's verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 to 16. As a congregation, we have the privilege to do what Jesus did when he was on the cross. He honored a widow. 
his own mom, Mary. He made sure she would be well taken care of before he breathed his last breath for her sins. So we get to honor widows. We get to emulate the character of Christ, verse 3 to 16. Verse 17 to 20, we honor pastors. And today we honor Christ in everything. Those are the four parts of chapter 5. And verses 21 to 25, which we're looking at today, also has four parts. Kids, do you remember them? God sees, God grows, God cares, and God knows. Verse 21, God sees. It's a call for integrity in the life of Christian workers. He's here. He sees. Verse 22, God supplies. God grows. Not God experiences growth. God himself does not grow. He makes people grow. And so verse 22 is a call to patience in the installation of pastors. God is not in a hurry. He does not need us to be impulsive and impatient and run ahead of him, but rather to prayerfully trust his work and to affirm it once evident. Verse 23 is God cares. He cares about your actual physical health. He wants you to feel as good as you can living in this fallen world even under the circumstances that you now live. And then finally, God knows. There's a call for purity in the life of all Christians because eventually, God knows everything and it will all come to the light. Well, first, God sees. Now, if you took out part of verse 21, it would still make sense. That part that you can take out and the verse still makes sense is a little parenthetical phrase, like a parenthesis. Let's just take it out for a second and read the verse again without that part in it. Now, yours may have words in a different order or a few different words, but you should be able to do this with whatever verse you're, uh, translation you're looking at. Look at verse 21. I'm going to take part of it out. I solemnly charge you to maintain these principles without bias doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. And that makes sense. The part I took out, of course, is in the presence of God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. So, back to the simple form, I solemnly charge you to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. The shorthand way to say that would be something like this. Do not operate by preferential treatment. Do not show favoritism to each other, and pastors especially, in your ministry. The same standard is true for all Christians in all churches, but pastors who give favoritism and bias and preferential treatment are actually undoing the unity of the church that Jesus died to pay for, Ephesians chapter 4. The ESV renders that portion of the verse this way. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. The NIV says it like this, keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. But the heaviest accent of the verse is not on the action that's to be done, but the motive for doing it. Not the fruit, but the root. Not the what, but the why. 
That's found in that parenthetical phrase that I took out. Look at it again, verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. Hence our first point, God sees. It's because God sees, because he's watching, because he's here, that Timothy is therefore to obey the injunction to not be partial and preferential and bias. Now that gives us the two parts of our first point, God sees. What are the instructions that Timothy's to obey? We've read it several times. I solemnly charge you to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. In the previous passage, we were instructed three things. Pay our pastors for their faithful labors in preaching and teaching the Word of God. Refuse to entertain false accusations against pastors. And follow biblical procedures for investigating accusations of sin in a pastor's life and rebuke him publicly in the presence of everybody if he will not repent. Those are the three things in the previous passage. In this verse, Paul says, maintain these principles without bias. You see what could happen, right? Two guys are pastoring together, become really good friends, you may be tempted to treat them with a favoritism that is actually unhealthy for the whole congregation, including him. Maintain these principles. No favoritism, no bias, no partiality. It means to do the work that's commanded in the previous verses. Rebuke unrepentant pastors publicly. Also, no matter what the cancel culture mob might be saying today, do not entertain false accusations against pastors. And number three, pay them well for their work's sake. Maintain these principles. And Paul lays an accent. He says, I solemnly charge you to maintain these principles. So the command to Timothy is to be impartial in his pastoral ministry because... Now, the verse doesn't say it. I'm putting the verse together. This is all verse 21. Do this because that actually accurately represents the character of God. The congregation is going to hear you, and maybe like right now, they're going to say, oh yeah, there he is again. Bible, God, Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But God's actually in the room. God is right here, right now. God is closer to you than the chair in which you sit. God is here. People need to see His character. What is God like? According to 2 Chronicles 19, the fear of the Lord must be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. That's what God is like. Or Romans chapter 2. There is no partiality with God. Or Ephesians 6. Masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Or Colossians 3, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and 
that without partiality. The Bible is loaded with the reality that God is not a God of partiality. James chapter 2, my brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So Peter connected two dots between the character of the impartial God. He does not show favoritism. He is not partial. Peter connects that dot with the gospel. Listen to this. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Here it comes. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You call him your God? You call him your father? Let me tell you two things about him. Peter puts this together. Two things, if you want him to be your father, know this. He impartially judges everybody. And number two, he redeemed you with the blood of his son. How can you stand before God and be exonerated for your crime? How can God still be God and become your friend? How does it not taint his holiness? How does it not smear his glory? How does he not have to reduce himself to something less than he is to befriend a sinner like me? We know he's impartial. He won't even compromise his own character to become my friend. How do we know? Peter put it together. This is how we know God is not going to do you a special favor. He put his son on a cross. The blood of Jesus is the proof that God is not partial. So verse 21, I solemnly charge you to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Why? Why, Paul? Verse 21, because God is here, Christ Jesus is here, and the elect angels are here. Where's the here? When Paul writes, in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the chosen angels. Did he mean God was with him while he was writing? Or did he mean that God was with Timothy while he was reading? Yes. What we have in this verse is something that theologians call the covenant presence of God. It's his special presence that is with his people in a special way. 
You need to know something else about God. Not only is he not impartial, he is everywhere. That's his omnipresence. You have lived your whole life in front of the face of Jesus of Nazareth. You have never been awake or asleep without Jesus there. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But there's another expression of his presence that believers will forever experience in glory. That's his manifest presence. That's the unveiled glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. He was talking about what Jesus was talking about in John 17. Oh, Father, I want them with me where I am so that they can see my glory. That's another kind of his presence. His omnipresence everywhere all the time. His manifest presence, which we see in Scripture in certain times and places and forever in glory. But a third expression of God's presence is what Paul's talking about. It's his covenant presence. It's something so precious. Jesus paid for this enjoyment for his people on the cross of Calvary. To whom does God in to whom does God promise his covenant presence? This special expression of his presence enjoyed only by some on this side of eternity. A foretaste of glory. The Jeremiah 29, if you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. What about the Matthew 28? As you go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to preserve what I've commanded you. I'm with you, you, those obedient subjects. I will be with you in a special way. To whom does God promise that presence? In the New Testament, we could easily answer the question in a simple phrase. His gathered church. That's why I said at the beginning, he's here now. He's closer to you than the chair in which you sit. Because in the New Testament, God promises his covenant presence with his gathered church. That's why God commands Christians. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't ask you to decide on Saturday night or Sunday morning what you're going to do about it. He commands Christians to assemble together regularly for the worship of God. Why? because he wants to meet with us in our gathered assemblies in a way that we cannot enjoy by listening to a podcast. You probably could have had more insights into this passage if you would have stayed home today and just had a six hour long quiet time in them instead of coming to this building. But what you cannot have in that moment, though I highly encourage you to do that on regular occasion, you cannot have what God promised to give to His gathered assembly. Jesus paid for something for His people to enjoy when He was dying on the cross that you can only access in community with His people gathered together as a local church. 
as the ground motivation to not be partial, Paul puts beneath his solemn charge for Timothy, don't be biased, don't show favoritism, be impartial. Here's his ground motivation, because God is here. So dear Grace Church, I want to ask you something. Do you feel him? Can you see him? Do you sense him? Before I started talking about all this, were you aware of him? I actually want to say it better. Even if you don't feel him, even though you cannot see him or maybe sense him, even if you're completely oblivious and unaware of him, I don't want to ask you anything about his presence. I want to join Paul and declare to you on the authority of his word that he is present. He's here now. And speaking of the cross of Christ, where he paid for this precious expression of God's presence with his church, we can have the ungrieved and unbroken presence of God with us now on favorable terms because the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He was on the cross, and Corinthians says He became sin. And Galatians says He became a curse. And Romans says He was condemned. When Jesus was on the cross and He took our sin and He took our curse, in that moment, He cried out that cry of dereliction, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason we can bank on God's presence with His gathered assembly, the church, is because His Son experienced a forsakenness so that we would never have to. He had the eternal enjoyment of the Father. He knew what the manifest presence of God was like from eternity. And he stepped into time and lived the life you should have and died the death you should have. And in those moments of his greatest agony on the cross, he was forsaken so that you never would be. And because the impartial God is right here, right now, and His Son, the Lord Jesus, and I love this little phrase, the elect angels. You see, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says that God has assigned angels to every believer. They are, quote, ministering spirits sent out to minister to those who inherit salvation. The angels that didn't rebel and became demons, the elect angels... They're not only just surrounding the throne of Jesus. There are four of them doing that right now. While you're in your chair, they're around the throne of Christ singing, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God. But each individual Christian has the ministry of these heavenly beings, according to Hebrews 1.14 and other passages. And because the Father, the Son the spirit who inspired the sentence and the elect angels are with us. 
the character of God should shape the way we relate to each other, and pastors especially must be impartial. God sees. Second, he supplies. He grows. He gives the growth. Look at verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. How would I get God's supplies out of that sentence? Here's what I'm saying. In God's time and by God's power, He provides what we need. He's the one that causes it. We can't manufacture it. Now, there's places all over the Bible, like in the book of Corinthians, where Paul likens Christians to an agricultural worker, a farmer. And we cultivate the ground, and we plant the seed, and we water, and then we just go to bed at night, and God causes it to grow. We don't do that. We cultivate, we plant, we water, we pray, we go to bed. God causes the increase. This verse is about installing new pastors in the church. The whole lay hands on somebody. And what I'm saying is we don't make pastors. We don't make elders. What I'm saying is Jesus gives them. God gives the growth. One of the most astounding passages that I've ever come across. It has reshaped my entire life. I'm literally standing here because of what God did in me through this passage. Ephesians chapter 4 says that when Jesus died for our sins, rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven. That passage also says that when he ascended to heaven and sat on the throne of heaven, he started dispensing gifts out of his benevolent heart to all of his churches. And those gifts that the ascended Jesus gives, according to Ephesians 4.11, are, among other things, pastors. He gives them to his churches. And then Ephesians 4 tells us why he does it. Now I want you to preach this sermon to your soul before I say it. I'm going to tell you what the verse says. And I want you to tell yourself what it means. Ephesians 4.11, he gives gifts, including pastors. Ephesians 4.12, for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So one more time, he gives pastors so that we all would have the fullness of Christ. I'm going to pause for two seconds. That means that the most Jesus-centered person in the church is Jesus. The reason he gives the gifts called pastors in Ephesians 4.11 is so that we will be built up in Jesus, 4.12. So that we will have the fullness of Jesus, verse 13. So that we will hear him, learn him, be taught in him, verse 20. If we believe that Jesus wanted us to have pastors more than we wanted to have them, 
then we would be patient in the process of examining and confirming a man's fitness for pastoral ministry before we lay hands on him and install him into office. I think that's what verse 22 is about. God's growing them up. Let God do the work. And just like I said last week, I pray often and I totally believe that there's some people sitting here today who will one day be pastors of this church. Because that's just the ordinary way that God allows his congregations to have his blessing. So, because God supplies, we need to be patient and be holy. Be patient. Don't lay hands on a man too quickly because when he falls into sin, you have some culpability in that as well. He needs to be tested. Be patient. It's about the dangers of trying to do the Lord's work man's way. Francis Schaeffer wrote an article about doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. Listen to what he said. Let us not think that waiting on the Lord will mean getting less done. The truth is that by doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we will actually accomplish more, not less. You need not fear that if you wait for God's Spirit, you will not get as much done as if you charge ahead in the flesh. After all, who can do the most? You or the God of heaven and earth? Do not lay hands upon a man too hastily. Thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Be patient. God is growing. Jesus cares about the good of his church more than any of us. Don't suppose that waiting to bring a man into the work of the pastorate is going to be easier. Now this verse really challenged me this week. Why might Timothy be tempted to prematurely install a man to the pastor or recommend to the church that they approve the installation of a man. I believe that's the biblical order. Why? Why would he want to hurry up? He probably needed some more help. So if you can't appoint him yet, what does that mean? More work for Timothy. Until the time is right, For another seed of the Lord's planting to grow into an oak of righteousness, Isaiah 64, Timothy, you just take up more. Francis Schaeffer added, nor should we think that our role will be passive. The scriptures and the history of the church teach that if the Holy Spirit is working, the whole man will be involved and there will be much cost to the Christian. The more the Holy Spirit works, the more Christians will be used in the battle. And the more they're used, the more there will be personal cost and tiredness. It is quite the opposite of what we might first think. People often cry for the Lord, the Holy Spirit to work, and yet forget that when the Holy Spirit does work, there is always tremendous cost to the people of God. Weariness and tears and battles. The Holy Spirit was at work in the church in Ephesus. Timothy might have needed some help. It would be a good thing for other pastors to be raised up to help in that good work but not prematurely. I think Paul's telling Timothy, his younger soldier in the Lord's work, you have to endure more hardship. You have to do more labor without adding a fellow comrade to the triage tent of the soul physicians out on the battlefield. Let them first be tested and trained before they're sent into the battlefields of shepherding and pastoral care. I want to say something to the young people. 
I can distinctly remember when I became a Christian my first year of college. I've said it this way before, and I've checked myself when I've said it, but I can distinctly remember nobody had to tap me on the shoulder and say, it would be a good idea for you to get to know the God who loves you so much. I began to devour this book. This was a treasure trove to my soul. I began memorizing copious portions of this book. Whole books, chapters, reading and rereading. And in a strange providence that I would not have done this way, God almost immediately after my conversion thrust me into a whole bunch of ministry opportunities. There were 1,500 people on my college campus. Every Thursday night, I was preaching to 500 of them, my sophomore, junior, and senior year. Three out of four weekends every month, I was preaching here, there, and everywhere, all over Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, everywhere. The reason I'm telling you that, most people thought I was ready to do it because I was having a quiet time every day. And when you looked around, there actually weren't a lot of people just having a quiet time every day. And so I want to say to you that you getting to know God and letting Him grow you with, to the unseen eye of man, seen by the eye of God, just letting Him grow you, I actually would not have written my script the way that it happened. And to be honest, I think some people made mistakes having me be the man to preach. I've actually asked the Lord for forgiveness for hundreds of sermons. I'm being blood earnest with you right now. I've preached passages of the Bible without ever talking about Jesus. I didn't understand enough. I wasn't mature enough. My own character hadn't been tested enough. And what I want to say to you, here's one of the sweetest things God does in the life of a real believer who's a young person. You just start devouring this book. You start loving Jesus irregardless of the applause of man. You want to grow in your faith because you want to know Jesus, not because you want to be known for knowing Jesus. And then, in God's providence, in God's time, when He fully intends, He'll start allowing you to have opportunities to represent Him in ways that are consistent with His character, unlike what I did many times. And this is what I want to say to you. Little church like this, I can assure you, has no shortage of ministry need, care need, counseling, soul physician work. A little church like this has no shortage of things to pray about, passages of Scripture to study more carefully, to try to help more people grow in their faith. A little church like this could definitely use some more pastors, some godly brothers and sisters who serve in myriads of ways.
But you will never get there if you don't just do the hard, unseen work of submerging your soul into the fullness of Christ day after day after day. Paul actually told Timothy two chapters earlier, do not appoint a man to be a pastor if he's a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. As the Lord raises up fellow workers in the church who are to be appointed as pastors, we're to be happy for the church to recognize and affirm those brothers as biblically qualified and sufficiently observed in their character. To be clear, this passage I don't think is about a man's age, let him first be tested and those kinds of things, not too soon laying hands on him. It's about Christ-like maturity. Many young men have proven to be more mature in their faith than many older men who've been in the faith longer than they may have even been alive, the younger men. Timothy was undoubtedly a very young man when he was pastoring the church at Ephesus because chapter four says, let no one look down on you because you're young. So whether you're in your early 20s or early 70s, we are to avoid laying our hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby sharing the responsibility of others' sins. Young people, seek Jesus with all your heart. The Lord Jesus Christ spent 30 years preparing for a three-year ministry. We won't mind a little unseen work of preparation. Go hard after God in the unseen. And in due time, God will use you fabulously for His glory. Which is, the last part of that verse, be holy. Verse 22 says, keep yourself free from sin. Not only the culpability of having appointed another person too quickly, but Paul's just giving Timothy a blanket admonition, you be holy, you keep yourself free from sin. It's not only the residual sin of having appointed a person to leadership prematurely who can't handle the weight of the pastorate and falls into sin, which Timothy would share responsibility for, but this is an additional command, present, active, imperative, Timothy, you be holy before the Lord. I want to ask you young people again, since Timothy was a young pastor, is personal holiness of utmost importance to you? I assure you, it is of utmost importance to God. Be holy, for I am holy. The word, keep yourself free from sin, could be translated, keep yourself pure. It reminds me of the final verse of 1 John, little children, guard yourself from idols. Are you walking in holiness? You see, this verse shows us that Timothy's primary work as a pastor is not getting things done, but getting God. And God is more interested in Timothy's purity than in his ministry portfolio. That's why when he was a 20-something-year-old young man, Robert Murray McShane said, my church's greatest need is the holiness of their pastor. I want to say to you something we're going to close with in a moment. Who you are in private is who you are. That's your real character. That's who you are. And Paul's telling Timothy, you keep yourself free from sin. See, God causes Timothy to grow too, while he's also growing up other potential pastors in the church that can help share the load. 
Third and fourth, God cares and God knows. Verse 23 is simple and straightforward. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I'm calling this God cares. Now, many have understood this verse to suggest that Timothy was running himself ragged in the work of pastoring. Like any pastor knows, the work is never done. Never done. And the needs of the flock don't care about showing up in office hours. And that's just called life. We're all just struggling. I was telling Tracy on the way to church today, man, so many people are just hurting right now. It seems that Timothy might have been so busy with the responsibilities of pastoring that he didn't even stop long enough to check on his own self. And while this verse has been used as a proof text that wine is permissible and that is biblically a fact, that's not the point of this verse. The point is that Timothy needed somebody to tell him, pump the brake, take care of yourself. He needed some additional supplement to regain his full strength and vigor so that he could serve the Lord as he ought. One of the best things a pastor can do for his ministry is, wait for it, stay alive. Don't die. I understand that God ordains our days and that we can do all sorts of healthy lifestyle things and still die tomorrow. I understand that. God is sovereign over the length of our days. But too many pastors, including the one talking to you right now, are prone to unhealthy lifestyle habits. That's why our covenant says to avoid all drugs, food, drink, and practices which bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. We're saying we want to hold each other accountable to try to take care of the tent and tabernacle the Lord's given us. Because this also is a part of our stewardship to the Lord. And it's the vessel that He uses for us to be able to do ministry and try to point others to Christ. A good pastor staying alive is actually a good thing. That's what I mean by titling this point, God cares. He cares about Timothy's physical health. And wine in the first century was known to have had some kind of medicinal effects, especially for stomach or gastro issues. It's okay to splurge on the needed medication, Timothy, so that you can keep up the work of pastoring. He's emaciating himself, just drinking water while he's got whatever internal sicknesses going on while he's busy trying to take care of the flock. And Paul needed to tell Timothy, use something that might help you to get physically healthy. It might help with your, quote, frequent ailments. So he had some other stuff going on in his body in addition to his stomach. This may help you. Paul told the Philippians, I really want to go to heaven. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I'm hard pressed. I would like to go to heaven right now. Philippians 1.23 I want to depart and be with Christ. Philippians 1.24, but to remain here is profitable for your sake. So I know I'll remain and I'll continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. That's why Paul wanted to be strong enough to serve. 1 Corinthians 1, he said, 
I just want to work with you, church at Corinth, for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. I just want to work with you for your joy. Well, Timothy needed some physical strength to be able to produce the spiritual ministry. Paul understood that staying alive was the most important part of his and Timothy's earthly ministry. Timothy might have been running himself so ragged that he didn't stop to take care of himself. And apparently those frequent ailments in verse 23 were plural. It seems like Timothy might have just lived sick. Some of you I've heard talk about, you just live tired, touche, but just living sick, never at full strength, not even knowing how bad you feel because you just feel bad all the time. Timothy might have been like that. And the church was letting him get away with it. Grace Church, if your pastors are running on empty, tell them to pump the brake. If they don't have anything to give, they will be of no use to anybody else's soul. So like we said last week about our responsibility as a church to pay pastors, protect them, sometimes protect the church from them if they won't repent of sin. After 27 years of gospel ministry, I think this pattern has been proven without fail. I believe that churches need to hold faithful pastors accountable to take time off, not to put time in. To refresh and reset and try to find healthier patterns in their life so that they can minister. If you're constantly having to helicopter over a pastor to make sure he's not cheating the church, he shouldn't be a pastor. But how many times have we heard of good pastors getting, quote, burned out because they didn't take enough time off or they didn't take care of their own body? I'm so thankful that literally today, Pastor Nathan is away, Pastor Trey just got back, Pastor Brian got back last night from trips to refresh and reset. According to our church's little communication app, for those who are not on it, like half of our church is on vacation right now. That's good. It's also good for pastors. We all benefit from our godly leaders being refreshed. And sometimes if they're just living sick or living tired, we need an Apostle Paul to say, hey, hey, time out. Just let's, let's make sure you're good. You see, while Timothy was busy caring for the Lord's flock, the Lord was busy caring for Timothy's health. No church has ever suffered from taking too good of care of their pastors. Many churches have suffered from not taking enough care of them. Every able-bodied person should work hard. That's one reason God gave you a body. If you don't use your body and you're of age and physically able to use it to work, you're disobeying God. If you sleep your life away, you are in direct disobedience of Proverbs 6. If you are a lazy person seeing how little you can do to get by rather than what you can do to honor God, don't work for man, work for the Lord, Colossians chapters 3 and 4, then you're in direct disobedience of Proverbs 19. But sometimes the most godly thing we can do, I'm going to get an amen after this one, take a nap. Psalm 127.2, it's vain for you to rise up early, retire late, eat the bread of painful labor, for God gives to his loved ones in their sleep. Amanda Kaiser sent me a message this week about mine and Nathan Kaiser's college roommate. He's a pastor in North Little Rock, Arkansas. He went to the emergency room on Friday in Little Rock with chest pains. 
He discovered he was having a mild heart attack and had 99% blockage in his widow maker. That's not supposed to be my generation yet, right? That's the older people. The worst thing my friend Travis could have done was just keep ignoring the symptoms and go visit the person that hadn't been to church in months to try to convince them that they're living in disobedience to God. Good thing to do. Bible verses to support it. But ignoring your own physical health to just keep the endurance race is really not helping anybody. This church all knows that God sometimes calls people home on a timeline that we would call premature. Our church prayed for a two-year-old that passed away this week. Many of us went to Mandy Gaiman's funeral this week. We know our days are in his hands. This verse is letting us know that God does care about our physical health. And one of the most godly things we can do is take care of ourselves physically, eat healthier, sleep enough, get some leisure. We're in a marathon. This is not a sprint. Over the long haul, staying alive is actually a good thing for a pastor to do. And Paul wanted Timothy not to forget it. The final thing, God knows. You see, he sees everything. He causes people to grow in their faith. Some of them will be pastors. He cares about us, even down to our physical, how we feel. But he also knows, verse 24 and 25, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. At the end of the day, God knows a man or woman's character. I said earlier, what you are in private is what you are. That is what your character is. It has been said many times that your private life is the mirror of your character. Your true character does happen when no one else is watching. But verse 24 and 25 tell us that while many, quote, get away with appearing to be one thing, when in reality they're another thing, these verses make certain God knows it all, and he will judge every man accordingly. From our vantage point, the sin of some and the good deeds of others are, to use God's phrase, quite evident. Verse 24 and 25. But in the end, you're on a collision course with Hebrews 4.13. There's no creature hidden from God's sight. All things are uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God, before whom we must give an account. We're all on a collision course with 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's not work salvation, but that's exhaustive judgment. See, God sees. He's right here, right now. We ought to live like that. God supplies. He's constantly raising up leaders. Our responsibility is to allow the Lord to develop them, even as we pour in and disciple and do our part. But God is developing them before we appoint them. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he started dispensing pastors to all of his churches. Let us just trust here at Grace Church. He's going to keep doing that. And God cares. He cares about our physical health. He knows that that is essential to our ministry. 
Don't neglect your physical health. Boy, I need to look at the mirror, in the mirror on that one. And then finally, God knows. One day soon, everything's going to come to light. We should live like that. If you want a favorable meeting with Jesus in the end, you must turn to Him now. But before you turn to him, I want to say something that I think I've left out too much and I definitely have not heard enough people emphasize. I want to be really clear. Before you give your life to Jesus, count the cost. If he saves you, he commands you to embed your life in a local church, letting them know the real you, and point the real you to the real Jesus? You see, the good news is that Jesus died for the real you, not the perceived you. He died for the you that he knows in verse 24 and 25. That's the you that he loves, not the fake you. He doesn't sanctify anybody. He doesn't grow anybody in the faith except the beautiful image of God person that he created you to be. And he recreates you in the image of Jesus when he saves you. Churches need pastors that are growing up into Christ, and whole churches need to be living in the light of the presence of God, knowing that one day soon we're all, verse 25, going to stand before Him in judgment. And until then, when Jesus saves His people, this is where I started, He puts those people in churches so that we can help each other keep our eyes on Jesus until one day we won't need any help. We're going to see Him face to face because the sufferings of this present world do not compare with the glory that will be revealed to us. Between now and then, title of the sermon, let us honor Christ in all things. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I ask that you would take anything I said that was wrong and erase it from our minds forever. And anything I said that was right and cause it to fester and grow, ask that you would bless this church with more pastors over time that have been maybe grown up right here in the seats of the church all their life. And just pray, Lord, that you would bless us with godly men who are in public and private the same, Jesus-loving Christians. Pray that you would cause us and our pastors to take care of their own bodies so that they can have an enduring ministry on this side of eternity. And I pray especially that you would cause us all to be gripped with the reality at the beginning and end of the passage that you see it all and you know it all. Let us live our life in your presence for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.